0: Good
1: afternoon and welcome. Today is the official one-year anniversary of the pandemic. It's been declared a National Day of Observance to commemorate those who lost their lives to COVID-19. By the numbers, 22,335 deaths across the country, more than 7,000 of them here in Ontario, and nearly 4,000 of those in long-term care. Everyone. Someone's grandmother, grandfather, husband, wife, sibling, auntie. Here is Toronto's Poet Laureate, Albert Moritz.
2: You staggered from death to death. You dragged yourself from the silent window where an old face looked out and knocked with twig-like fingers at children trying to shout in through the crystal silence, Grandma! Nani,
1: Dadi. Oh, hearing that always makes me uh, cry, I guess. I'll be running more of that moving poem and what is behind the poetry and art of the pandemic on Zoomer Weekend Review this Sunday at noon. But now let's take a more down-to-earth look at what this year has meant and what it has changed for those most affected, and that is long-term care. We also want to hear from you, of course, about how your year went. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Kathy Parks, whose father passed away at Orchard Villa last April, and Jane Mead, a staff lawyer and the institutional advocate at the Advocacy Center for the Elderly. Hello and welcome to you both. Good
3: morning, Hello. Libby. Good morning, Kathy. Let's Good
1: morning, start, Hi,
3: Jane.
1: Let's start with Kathy. Uh, tell us about your dad. I, I think you lost him pretty early on in the, t- in the pandemic and how did... How did that affect you?
4: Yeah, he passed away uh, April 15th, 2020. So part of the first wave and part of the first set of the first wave. Um, it affected me in very different ways. I spent the past um, 11 months advocating for change in long-term care um, and, and then also going through the grieving process. And I recognize that as we're coming up to the one-year anniversary, which is the one-year anniversary this week was the last time I actually saw him in person. Um And oddly enough, he was actually sent to the hospital from the home that day. Um, So it's hitting me hard. I'm I'm struggling. I can't believe it's almost been a year since I've seen him. Um, And I I think a lot of
1: families feel that way. Do you feel like you've had a chance to grieve properly? Not really.
4: No, because I've spent a lot of time speaking out, and I've had to. I realized probably just before Christmas that I'm actually quite traumatized by what happened to Dad. And so I have to sort of put it away sometimes because it becomes too overwhelming emotionally. Um, so I'm still, I'm still grieving. I'm still taking time to think about it, taking moments, uh, time with my family. But it's a long process. And I think that some of it's been put on hold because of how publicly i have been speaking. But I feel like it's what Dad would have wanted.
1: Um, just tell us a little bit about him.
4: Oh, my gosh. Uh, he had a great sense of humor. A uh, Really, really funny guy. He loved to laugh. Loved his family. I mean, if we could have moved into a long-term care home with him, he would have loved that.
1: <laughs> and what um, was
4: his name? Paul Park. Yeah. And he, he grew up, I mean, he taught us how to uh, camp and canoe and fish, loved the outdoors, loved being with his family, really enjoyed cooking and gardening. Um, he was very much into religion and the Bible and uh, just a very, very friendly guy.
1: And, and how old was he? He was 86 when he passed away. I'm sorry, you know, and, and it's uh, Jane. I'm sure that uh, you've heard from other families. It's the same thing, and and I I guess that there's there's also um, a kind of uh, guilt that you wonder if if he had been somewhere else, would the same thing have happened? I'm sure a lot of people feel that. Well, yeah, I,
4: there's a oh, sorry, no, go, 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 go ahead, Kathy. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say there is a guilt. I, I feel like even putting your family members into a long term care home because there's a stigma around long term care. And that comes with its own guilt. I spent I spent the first week crying when he went into that home. So and of course, everything that comes with it of could I have done something differently? Could I have done more? For Sure.
1: Jane?
3: Well, yeah. I mean, I think that there is a huge amount of guilt and I think Kathy's quite right that people often feel quite guilty when they're putting people in long-term care. And that's a real sort of sad um, reflection on our long-term care system because um, it is not seen as a positive thing and it should be. It should be, you know, here's another place to go and it's sad that he has to go there, but, you know, it's going to be a good thing for them. And yet you have Kathy who says that she cried for, you know, a week when she put him in and that's, pre-COVID. That's, that. um, and so, you know, that really shows where our system was prior to long-term care. And then you get COVID on top of that. And then you get the guilt. Well, I was already feeling guilty of putting my parents in or my p- husband or my family member, friend, whatever it was. And then you get this COVID on top of that. And people are saying, oh my God, did I make the wrong choice? But what could I do? I had no choice because people couldn't you know, manage people. We rely on our healthcare system um, and we are very, you know, generally very proud of our healthcare system in Canada as being something that's open and equitable and provides good care. And yet we really don't, haven't had that perspective of long term care pre COVID. And of course, now it's even worse.
1: Well, yeah, now it's, uh, I mean, the only way to describe it is a national shame, Kathy.
4: I agree. I, I I mean, I think that, um, you know, as Jane was saying, we, we, there was, there, we knew what long-term care was like. Um, I've known what it's like. My, my grandparents were in it in the early 2000s, and it was also then. So, but when you come to a point that you can't lift the person anymore, and, and they're, you know, catheterized, or there's something else that they need, and they need 24-hour care, you don't have a choice. I wouldn't even call it a choice. It's not a choice to put someone in. It's just an inevitable thing that has to happen. And um, COVID really exposed even what I saw. He was only there for five months. But you kind of deal with everything as it comes along, and you don't really see the bigger picture when you're in it until COVID comes along. And then everybody gets to see the bigger picture.
1: Well, I guess uh, the hope is that at this point, people can't, Look away. I mean, frankly, I am skeptical because, you know, when the crisis passes, uh, you know, people will move on. But, you know, people who I consider to be very smart and insightful are saying, well, this time finally we'll do something because you can't look away from this. And the sheer number of deaths, the sheer fact that Canada, Canada, our Canada had the worst record in the world, in the Western world, 80% of deaths in the first wave in long-term care. I mean, it, it, it is a national shame, Jane.
3: Absolutely. And, and, you know, your your and my relationship, Libby, goes back far before, beyond COVID. Yes. Um, and we've talked many, many times about the issues. And so I would say that, you know, you as well as I, as well as many people who've been advocating for years, and I've been doing it 25 years, I know you've been doing it a long time, none of this is surprising. And when you read the transcripts of people who were in long-term, who, you know, had a history of long-term care, um you know, work. Um, you know nothing of this was surprising. and you know we hear again and again we had the police inquiry, oh, this is going to change the system. this is going to do it now. And nothing changed. Um, uh, you know, and all of the issues that we ran into during COVID um, were things that were predictable, um, you know, the lack, the, the very the fractured nature, of our system in Ontario of healthcare is appalling, and it, when you read, um, you know, nobody knew what, what, who what was doing what during this. Um, we had homes that were not being inspected. We had homes that, you know, were very old, and we knew that was a big problem. Um, we weren't cohorting people. We had misinformation everywhere. Public health had been cut. Uh, nobody knew who was. To be going in and doing IPAC, you know, there was a report that just came out recently about a, you know, a couple of weeks ago, someone was quoting where the home still didn't understand IPAC. Well,
1: and it's a year later. It's it's absolutely appalling. I know during the first wave, uh, the inspectors were doing inspections by phone, Mm -hmm. and these are very highly paid civil servants. And, you know, I understand why they were reluctant, but our other frontline workers, whom we call heroes, they did their jobs and poorly paid PSWs. They also showed up to work. Inspectors were working from home. many administrators in some homes were working in home
3: at home and had, you know, weren't there. Um, the doctors weren't going into the homes. Um, it was just, it was shameful. And people were being, and I know Kathy we can probably speak to this from the experience of the residents and the families at Orchard Villa, people were not being sent to hospital. And the excuse was, oh, they don't want to go. They want to stay in their home and, you know, die there. Well, all it was doing was spreading the disease. Um, and you still hear that now is that, oh, people have said they don't want to go. Those are not informed choices. Those are not what people meant. And, you know, if we can't contain it in homes, we have to make other choices. And yet, we've still seen in the second wave and going into the third wave, and the only difference we have now is the vaccine. And again, it's always been, and this is the same in the flu, it's not, let's keep it out. It's well, we'll give people a like vaccine so when it comes, they'll be okay. Or we'll give them, to, you know, medication when it comes. Instead of keeping it out and having proper IPAC and having proper cleaning and all those things that we should have.
1: Um, it. It's, it, it's, it's really amazing. And one of the amazing things, Kathy, uh, you know, you said your father was sent to hospital, which is good. But there were a lot of homes where people were prevented from going to hospital.
4: Well, I, I want to say he was sent to the hospital the last time I saw him. Um, when he actually had COVID, I did actually request for him to go into the hospital on April 14th and was denied. And it wasn't a matter of asking him because he was comatose. And I think people need to understand, too, that when you're asking a resident, they don't want to leave their familiar surroundings. But also, you know, they're in a state of delirium because they've got a fever. So they're not making choices that are based on, you know, cognitive ability. And this is where the POA or the caregiver really should be asked. Had you asked me, I would have sent him. As a matter of fact, I was asking and I was denied. So I was told that um, the hospitals wouldn't accept him. The ambulance attendants wouldn't take him. And did I want to put my father through that? It is trying to send him. So he actually never had the opportunity to go and he passed away the next day.
1: Uh, that's, that is that is just so sad. And, and, you know, my takeaway from the first wave, and I have way more issues with what has been happening in the second wave, was that the, the province, partly because of the experience of SARS, they got really well prepared in hospitals to the detriment of long-term care. And I know that actually there were actually a lot of patients, what's known as ALC, alternate level of care, who are kind of stuck in hospital while they're waiting for a long-term care placement. A lot of those people were cleared out so there would be room in the hospitals. They were moved into
4: long-term care facilities, yes, temporary positions. I know that happened at Orchard Villa. And I remember that I had heard that day, April 14th on the radio, that ICUs were empty, ventilators were going unused, And the hospitals were not receiving the amount of patients they thought they would have, which is why I first thought I should send him. There's room and they kept him.
5: And uh, the home wouldn't
1: let me send him. Okay. Let's take a call from Mark in Mississauga. Hi, Mark.
5: Hello. Good afternoon.
1: How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? Hanging in there. But
5: yesterday was a bit rough because when I uh, received a message regarding uh, my mother at her long-term care, I had, I believe... It took all but five to 10 minutes to call back. And my goodness, a half hour, 40 minutes, no one answering the phone properly, nothing but your, uh, you know, your automated systems. And it was horrendous. It's like, this is getting ridiculous.
1: When when was this? When was this? I'm sorry. When was this?
5: yesterday afternoon
1: and and uh, you got a call from your mother's home and have you been able to reach them
5: well after the fact and th- this is something that had happened recently Libby to where i felt that communication in a year's time since this all began and you probably don't recall with so many phone calls that i phoned you uh, almost a year ago with regards to how happy I had been with uh, my mother's uh, care and whatnot where she is. But things have diminished dramatically. And I'm telling you, with changes in personnel and, and uh, you know, hiring practices, people quitting, there's so much going on that has been under the radar. Those of us kept in the dark, family members, it's horrendous.
1: So what uh, we need to, to, is your mother okay? Well, I'm, I'm informed. And here's the key thing. Is is she okay? I
5: have not, I have not gone for number one reason. I have not been sick. My mother has not been sick. I don't want to bring anything in. I don't want to take anything out. They have always maintained, please get, you know, you know, proof of being tested. And how many times in a year now, have they broken down with outbreaks because visitors have brought the pandemic in. They have shut down and what, what's going on? I mean, I purposely personally have chosen not to go.
1: Okay, Mark. And uh,
5: my goodness, you uh, know, it, it's over the top.
1: Okay, Mark. Um, glad to hear your mom is okay. Um, thanks for your call. A lot of, Frustration uh, and, you know, communication has been a very big issue in all of this. Um, Jane, uh, are you optimistic? Do you think that this horrific experience will result in something good? Uh, It's really hard to tell because, you know,
3: what we hear from the minister and the, the information that we hear from the government, we hear a lot, but we're not really seeing a lot. You know, we hear a lot about how they're protecting the residents and it's clearly not happening. Um, so I'm very skeptical. You know, yes, they're putting money in, but are they putting it in in the right way? Are they putting in the right plans? You can't just throw money at things. It's also that planning. And as I said, there's such a fractured system that we have now. And the, even the, and the COVID response has been so fractured. It's really hard to see whether or not that's going to change. But, you know, the bigger picture, I think, Mark, was just, you know, really focusing on a couple of things. It's that communication with the homes, which has been dreadful um, with, the, you know, with substitutes and family members. And also the um, people leaving long-term care in droves. Um, because of overwork, lack of support, poor pay, um, obviously the, you know, the infections in the home, they didn't want to get sick. Um, you know, I'm not sure how many, you know, how much, he, he you know, he mentioned viruses coming in through um, visitors, and I don't know that that's actually been shown that much. You know, it's really coming in mostly through staff, and that's unfortunate, but, you know, that really is where it's coming in, because then for most People they haven't had too many visitors.
1: And and Kathy, what do you hope will come out of all of this? And and personally, what are you hoping for?
4: Well, first, I just want to say, if there's a lack of communication coming from the home, my first question would be, what are the staffing levels at? Because that was the problem with Orchard Villa. Um, I would be very concerned about staffing levels if people are not answering the phone for hours at a time. Um, my my hope my out my hope for all of this is that advocates and family members and really all Canadians and everyone in Ontario but all across the country will continue to speak and that we're not oversaturated with this information, <clears throat> that we won't forget because of the vaccines. Um, I, I'm really pushing for national standards uh, in long-term care for, for our federal government to create a standard across the entire country so we can remove the stigma from long-term care. And my very end goal <clears throat> would be to see no more profits in long-term care.
1: Okay um boy that's 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 a big wish list and I think we're all hoping for national standards and even that seems difficult I'm sure we'll be talking about this a lot more thank you so much Kathy Parks and Jane Meidus thank you Okay. Um, now, as we've been saying, COVID-19 has hit us unequally with some regions and neighborhoods bearing a much bigger burden than others. Brampton is one of those hard hit places. And now I'd like to welcome Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown. Hi, Patrick. Hello, great to be
6: back on your show again this week.
1: Thank you, Patrick. Uh, great to have you here. Um, it's a it's a pretty somber day. Um, I'm sure that you're reflecting on the last year and how it's affected your Brampton as opposed to other places.
6: Yeah, it is a, a reminder of uh, the adversity we faced over the last year, not just the Covid fatalities, the pressures on the healthcare system, um, but the economic chaos caused by the last year too—it's been—it's been hard on on so many individuals, hard on so many people.
1: Mm hmm. And uh, I mean, when you when you look at it, I mean, there there's a big issue in Brampton, a lot of lower paid essential workers are there. They're not people who are able to work from home. Uh, And uh, there's a whole issue about sick days and and there have been workplace outbreaks because people can't afford to take a sick day
6: yeah you know, we've looked at the data and twenty five percent of the cases that we've tracked since August um, have involved uh, people going to work sick twenty five percent and you imagine the spread associated with that yeah uh, um, you know, i I have to highlight and I have to constantly remind uh, everyone that there are some cities that have carried a greater weight during covid nineteen you know uh, there are cities out there that have a large public sector. Um, employment environment. That's not the case in Peel region in, in Brampton. Two of our largest sectors are transportation, logistics and food processing. And, um, they've been at work. They've been working not at a hundred percent capacity, but probably 150% capacity since this pandemic began. And if they weren't, we wouldn't have medical supplies coming into the country. We wouldn't have groceries in the grocery store. And, you know, when we, when we eventually get through this pandemic, I think there needs to be a level of appreciation and thanks. For those that that sacrificed so much during the pandemic,
1: well, you'd think that there would be a little bit of that now. <laughs>
6: you would, honestly, you, 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 you would think so, but you know, quite often I hear people on social media or on radio uh, pointing fingers and and stigmatizing regions that have actually um, borne a greater uh, sacrifice. Uh,
1: let me ask you this: to to uh, you know, move over to the positive side. Now, have you seen? Things getting better at all?
6: Yeah, I, you know, I, I am encouraged, um, and there is reasons for optimism. All our long term care is now vaccinated. Our hospital capacity is the best that has been in in six months. Uh, you know, there there is reasons for encouragement. You know, our our um, our uh, numbers uh, look encouraging. The at one point the positivity rate was seventeen percent. Now we're down to six and a half percent. there has been dramatic progress and it's just wonderful seeing our vaccination centers abuzz with activity of seniors over 80 being vaccinated. And then, of course, yesterday, the pilot project got announced. Those between the ages of 60 and 65 in Brampton and Mississauga and Caledon will be vaccinated at their family doctor offices. And so more residents are being vaccinated. You know, I, I wish we had the vaccine to vaccinate everyone. But the fact that you know, there's a lot of people being vaccinated right now. is is encouraging.
1: Well, a, a couple of things. So uh, first, I, I I have to tell you that for once, people in Toronto were jealous of people in Brampton, and because of that, because you have managed with people over 80, while people over 80 here, uh, a lot of them have been cooling their jets and waiting, and and not able to get access.
6: Yeah, so we've created them. Um, delivery platforms that as soon as we get vaccines, there'll be be no lag time. So, you know, when we got vaccines for those over 80, we were able to to launch the appointment booking website almost immediately. And the exciting thing is right now, we have the delivery mechanisms ready to go to do up to 70,000 vaccines a day. Um, Now, (laughs) we're not going to get anywhere near that amount of vaccines, but it's just, uh, it's nice to know that if, the supply comes. If Canada gets that supply, we're going to be in a really solid position in Peel to get those vaccines in people's arms.
1: Now, I heard uh, the mayor of Mississauga, Bonnie Crombie, complaining that, you know, we know that um, the pilot project for AstraZeneca for 60 to 64 year olds is being rolled out in pharmacies, but apparently no pharmacies in Peel. What do you make of that? Yeah, so Mayor Crombie myself
6: asked about this. Um. What the provincial response was is they're testing what the fastest way, most effective way, to vaccinate, uh, and their these pilot projects are they're trying pharmacies versus primary care providers, so family doctors. And so over the next few weeks, they're going to look at what delivery mode was most effective, the one they're using in in Toronto or the one they're using in Peel. Um, but you know, the number that I'm looking at most closely, and and I look at this every day is uh, vaccines per capita um, and we have a fire in Toronto and Peel region, a fire with the virus and, you, and, and the vaccine is the fire extinguisher and if I see fire extinguishers being used in parts of the province where they don't have the same challenges at a greater rate you know, I would be livid, right now Toronto and Peel region are getting the vaccines at a higher amount per capita than the rest of the province and that's appropriate given the fact that you know we have we've been under lockdown for so long and we're facing a real battle with with the virus.
1: Well, yeah, but the question is, who is getting those vaccines? I, I've got some issues with how it's being rolled out in Toronto for sure. Uh, but again, back to this pharmacy versus physicians. So uh, are you saying that physicians, I mean, I think physicians in Toronto are already getting some, or is it just pharmacies in Toronto to see the difference?
6: Yeah, so the pilot project is, pharmacies in Toronto and primary care providers in, in Peel. And from my perspective, you know, I'd love to do both. Um, but, but you know, it, it all depends on, on supply. But I don't care if it's a pharmacy or a family doctor office, whatever way we can get these vaccines in the people's arms as fast as possible. Um, and I think the reason they're doing these tests right now to see what is fastest is they're waiting for the supply to come in. And by testing the delivery modes right now, um, it will give them insights into what's more effective when the supply does
2: arrive.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's interesting. I I think it probably in terms of when you're comparing them, it it depends would depend on the size of the family practice. I mean, some of those practices have thousands of patients uh, in their catchment, uh, and in the pharmacies, we're we're going to be talking to uh, a pharmacist and a family doctor, Patrick. After we get off the phone with you and, and you know, uh, one of the pharmacist already had a head start and there are already huge lineups of people with appointments at his shop, which is big. Yeah, and, and I should add for the primary
6: care providers, that starts this weekend too. And one of the reasons that that's an agile delivery method is they already have the patient list. And so with with the pharmacies, people are going onto website and booking if they fall under that age category. With the family doctor offices, they're actually going out and calling their patients and saying, you're eligible, you can come in at this time. And so these are different methods, um, and it's going to be interesting to see w- which one is more effective at getting more vaccines into people's arms.
1: And and the other interesting thing about that is is there's a lot of concern... When we finally get the second phase, and people with certain medical conditions are going to be allowed to go ahead of those who are older, and uh, so the the there's a fear of queue jumping and abuse because the province said, "Well, you were you're not going to have to take any proof with you," but I guess uh, if it's a family doctor that's calling the patient, they'll know.
6: Yeah, and and you know, I I just hope that no one is that. Um, reckless that they would want to jump the queue over a vulnerable um, individual of our community.
1: You know, oh, oh, believe me, Patrick, yeah, people want yeah. to jump the queue. I've already seen, I honestly, on on a, a, a neighborhood email. Well, this had to do with AstraZeneca, and it's from probably from someone who is older uh then uh you know then the sixty to sixty four like so somebody was you know telling the neighborhood this is this is how you try to book if you're eligible and and then the question was so so do they ask for your health card? can they check your date of birth Well,
6: I, I assume that those um yeah I think. those steps are being taken um but you know th- th- there's a reason that AstraZeneca is right now being recommended for those under sixty five um and so I would hope that residents would follow the public health advice and, um, and hopefully in, in the very near future, we're going to have enough vaccines for everyone.
1: OK, well, uh, I don't want to debate that with you. <laughs> I think that that particular decision uh, is is a mistake, but um, that's that's not a topic for us to decide. Uh, what are you doing in Brampton or have you done in Brampton to commemorate the lives lost?
6: so we have um dimmed our our, our lights at city hall we've uh, lowered the the flag uh, to um to remember um those who have fallen over the last uh, last year there's been a loss of life uh, that's affected every segment of our of our community and um it's um it's a loss that we remember today
1: mhm oh i hear i hear your son
6: yes uh, the, one, one of the benefits of working from home is that uh, you can be interrupted uh, by your loved ones at any occasion. And at, and at one and a half, he does that regularly.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but there you go. Hi there. Um, f- finally, are you worried about... A third wave, I, the numbers are, are still above 1,000. I just saw that the RT rate, the, the replication rate, is above 1, which is it's concerning uh, when it's above 0.7. Are you worried about this, and what do you think should be done?
6: Well, um, I do think we're in a better position than we were before for any potential additional wave. Um, our hospital capacity is very strong right now. Um, so that's that's one thing. Secondly, our most vulnerable residents uh, have been vaccinated or are in the process of being vaccinated, and so I think as a society we'll be able to handle um, any future wave um, in a better fashion. And more, and also to add that the good weather is is on the horizon. As we know, one of the biggest factors in helping dealing with COVID nineteen um, is being outdoors, and um, and very soon we're going to have weather that will enable us to be outdoors more more frequently. So so I do think there are reasons for optimism ahead, and uh, I'm not as concerned about a future wave as, as as I may have been in December when we were talking about what was ahead in January.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Mayor Patrick Brown, Mayor of Mississauga. appreciate your time. Mayor of Brampton. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. That was a, a bad slip of the tongue, Brampton. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks a lot. All right. uh, We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about that pilot project, uh, some with doctors, some with pharmacies, uh, giving that AstraZeneca vaccine to people between the ages of 60 and 64. We'll also be taking your calls. The numbers 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740, and we'll be right back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Oh, no. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back now to one of
1: the bright spots in the vaccine rollout. And that is the pilot project, which has pharmacies and doctors administering the AstraZeneca vaccine, albeit to a small swath of the population, people aged 60 to 64. Our listeners have heard me venting about that. I'm not going to get into it right now. The doctors involved are supposed to start on Saturday, and the pharmacy program is supposed to start tomorrow. As usual, our friend John Papasturgio is ahead of the curve. He's been inoculating people since yesterday, and Dr. Sohail Gandhi, also a friend of the show, is getting some of those doses for his patients in georgian bay we will also be taking your questions i see a couple on the board already hang on we will get to them quite soon right now they are both joining us hi there hey how are you fine how are you
2: yeah, it's been a busy couple of days but you're good to be here
1: and dr Gandhi, welcome
2: Thank you very much. Always a pleasure.
1: Okay. Uh, John, let's uh, start with you. Yesterday, uh, you, you told us that you gave the first shot. So um, how did you get the shipment early, and how many people have you already vaccinated?
2: Yeah, great question. Uh, you know, I was driving to work yesterday, and uh, I got a call uh, uh, from our uh, shoppers during our corporate office saying they'd landed some vaccine early, and the, the ministry gave them all an okay to start. In a store that uh, you know is used to doing vaccines and a high volume of them, so we, you know, we got our our, our shipment in about you know twelve o'clock, one o'clock, and we uh, since then we've been going nonstop. Uh, uh, we've been you know we've we've probably do the most uh, flu vaccines uh, in a pharmacy in the GTA. So uh, my team was ready to go pretty much uh, as soon as the vaccine got there. And uh, it's been quite an interesting environment here. Patients really excited, real positive vibe, almost a uh, you know party atmosphere as we're going through them. Uh, we're doing about Libby uh, right now about uh, fifty patients an hour, I would say. Even oh my more than goodness! That. Yeah, so I think it really highlights the fact that when pharmacy gets going, uh, uh, we can really do a lot of uh, patients quickly. And I think uh, we'll be done five hundred doses uh, in the next hour or so here. So. Uh, We're going to run out here. Good thing is my other three stores on the Danforth are just getting their supplies, So we should be uh, well-equipped down here to go uh, throughout the weekend.
1: Uh, You know, it's interesting. I think that uh, the authorities, the provincial authorities, I think they estimated in one of the briefings that they thought that pharmacies on average would do 40 a day. You're doing 50 an hour. That's pretty hefty.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, that's not representative of every pharmacy for sure. I think it's going to vary depending on the staffing, the size of the pharmacy, and everything else, but we are equipped to do vaccination and these type of services here. So we're, yeah, we're well ahead of the curve. And uh, yeah, it uh, it does. I mean, I, I've seen some of the news outlets saying that there's lineups. Of course, we have to maintain the social distancing within the store. So I can't let everyone into the store at once. Uh, it would be we we have our shoppers here and everything else. So we are queuing the patients outside. And uh, as uh, their turn comes up, they're coming into the store. So you're seeing some of these uh, uh, lineups on, on the news. That really is because we want to protect the safety of all our patrons and our staff within, within the business.
1: Okay, and well, it's a nice day today. Dr. Gandhi, so uh, you're in Georgian Bay, yep. and uh, you're not getting a huge amount of doses, um, there there are fifty doctors participating. Is that right?
7: Yeah. So our our team uh, encompasses fifty doctors, and for fifty doctors, we got uh, four hundred doses, which we will. Uh, our clinic is running tomorrow. We've been we we're fortunate enough that we were able to work together and set up a drive through clinic for uh, patient safety. So this is probably the safest way of administering a uh, COVID vaccine, and uh, they're all booked for tomorrow. and And I, I anticipate that all four hundred will happen uh, tomorrow.
1: And so, did you you contacted your patients, right?
7: Yeah, so uh, we're fortunate because your family physician, of course, has all your uh, demographic information. And as you know, the National uh, Advisory Council on Immunizations has mandated that for the first go-around, only patients from age 60 to 64 without any health conditions are allowed to have the, the vaccine. So uh, we were able to sort that out because we've got all the information on patients and make sure that uh, only those who are appropriate to have the vaccine at, uh, for this week were able to get it.
1: Oh, wait uh, a minute. You... I, didn't, I didn't know there was that other caveat. So does that mean, uh, does that exclude people with uh, chronic conditions like diabetes?
7: Yeah, if you look through the uh, the memorandum of agreement that everyone's uh, supposed to sign in order to get these vaccines, it says that this is uh, initially for people who have that age group who don't have any significant uh, comorbidities like diabetes, uh, COPD, that sort of thing.
1: Wow, I I hadn't heard that, John. Uh, do you you do you have to make sure that that's the well, case? Well, I mean,
2: uh, all our patients here have some type of comorbidity, so yeah, it's. Uh, Uh, In that age group, it's very difficult for me to identify patients that have not. The other challenge with us is they're not just my patients here in the pharmacy. They're coming from now because the words are from all over as well. So uh, it is uh, difficult. I had not heard that uh, that specific detail either, Uh, but we are restricting uh, it to the age demographic right now.
1: Okay. Well, that it's Dr. Gandhi. That's, that's the first I heard. And I was actually thinking the opposite because, uh, yesterday on the show, we dealt with this issue uh, that for the phase two that people are worried about Q jumping and, and when people with, uh, some conditions get priority, uh, that isn't linked to age, uh, you know, people are worried that there might be Q jumpers, people who mm-hmm. say, Hey, I have diabetes, hypertension when they don't. Uh, and the thought was that family doctors can triage.
7: Yeah, exactly. And that's where, um, you know, in the initial stage, the family doctors can can really help follow the uh, the NACI guidelines. Now, to be clear, one of the reasons the guidelines are like that is because the supply of vaccines is so limited. Like we've had some real issues on the procurement uh, end of the vaccine on a federal level. Um, the, the thinking is that because this vaccine has just come... Uh, and because we're anticipating actually a larger amount of the Pfizer vaccine coming in the next couple of weeks, uh, the people who have those core will be getting the, um, will be getting the Pfizer vaccine in the next uh, coming weeks. Of course, they have to go to a, a specialized center to get that because as you know, right now the Pfizer vaccine is only approved for, uh, Transport at, at minus seventy Celsius or whatever, and one. No, you, they lifted. You use it and that sort of stuff. Yeah. They
1: they lifted the minus seventy. It still has some restrictions, it, I think. But that-
7: to, yeah, you, you try to mix this thing up. I, I saw the demo, the diagram they sent me is how you mix it, how you stir it, how you put it together. It's. Uh, it's a very complicated process, even without the minus seventy so um, but I think the thinking is because the Pfizer vaccine is coming in more quantities in the next couple of weeks. that's why um, people with comorbidities should preferentially go to a center and get the Pfizer vaccine at least that's that's how it was explained to me
1: okay well um Dr. Gandhi, before I take some calls, I just want to go down memory lane a little bit to a year ago today. And here's my, and I don't know if I ever told you this story. We're going to hear stories from, from, uh, our audience, but a year ago today, uh, you and I were down the hall in Zoomer hall, uh, doing a TV show on drug shortages. Yep. And, uh, I remember that, uh, you, the, the pandemic had just been declared, and I know that we were told we had to be very strictly on time because one of the panelists, uh, who was a professor of pharmacy, had to get on a plane to go to Florida. So here's what I remember, that you tried to talk her out of going. You were not successful in that. But I was kind of overhearing it, and I then got into contact with a friend of mine, who was actually undergoing cancer treatment at the time and who had been going back and forth to Florida. And uh, I got her on the phone and I invoked your name and I was successful in convincing her not to go to Florida. Okay. So I thank didn't know you about
7: th- that. I didn't know about your friend. Uh, hope so, she's better.
1: She's 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 much better and uh she's much better off that she didn't go to Florida and get stuck there while she was still had some chemo and radiation to do here.
7: Yeah.
1: So uh I wanted to share that with you. Thanks. And uh John Pappasturdio you, uh you know that's one of the things that's that's been worse because of the pandemic is drug shortages
2: yeah for sure. I mean, I think uh very, very early on in the pandemic, we saw this this kind of spike in demand around uh 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 prescription medications and in order to compensate for that, what had happened is we uh the government decided it was uh, a good idea to restrict uh the supply to a thirty day bill, which did make sense at that time. It made a lot of sense. it maintained the integrity of the supply chain and it was able to ensure everyone got their prescriptions because we were starting to see it we were starting to see a variable supply of these things. Uh, the only challenge, uh, as a result of that, is when we went back uh, to a 90-day fill for chronic medications, we essentially synchronized the entire province. So what we saw is uh, these spikes uh, that were three times higher than uh, usual every 90 days. So it did impact our workflow, and it happened right in the middle of flu season when we were trying to vaccinate everyone for flu. But now, as we uh, move, you know, uh, further along throughout the pandemic, I think. The supply really has stabilized. Uh, There are uh, still shortages, definitely, of things. And not only prescription, uh, uh, you see it in my stores, even in the front store as well. Uh, Some manufacturers having issues uh, with getting uh, their product in. But for the most part, it's it's much, much better than where it was. And I haven't had a situation, really, where I can't get a patient a medication or an alternative uh, to the medication they were on. So I think uh, we've come a long way since the beginning, uh, Libby.
1: Hopefully, uh, let's take a couple of calls. We've got Sharon in Hamilton. Hi, Sharon. Hello, Lizzie. How are you? Fine. How are you? Go
8: ahead. Um, I have a question to ask you. If you have allergies, like I have asthma, and I have have COPD, and I'm allergic to certain foods, um,
1: would the vaccine help for that or not? I don't think it would help for that. Um,
7: well, it's it's uh, so it wouldn't help with the allergies, or uh, but it would certainly be protective from infections like COVID nineteen uh, that can make uh, can be quite bad in people who have COPD or asthma. So it's really important to uh, to get the vaccine.
8: Um, do you know when they would be doing it in
7: Hamilton? I, I don't know for Hamilton. I I know.
2: Oh, he knows. Yeah. No, oh, I don't. Either, Doc. I, yeah, I, not I, yet. we don't know right now. The pilot for us is restricted pardon? to uh, Kingston, uh, Windsor, and Toronto.
1: Well, so th- there's probably uh, Kingston. So they're not doing people uh, in Hamilton. They started doing the people over eighty, uh, but oh. that, but uh, you know, if you have those conditions, you would be in phase two, yes. which supposedly is going to start in April. So, um, no, I'm I'm
8: 67, going on 68.
1: Well, that would be phase two, both for for your age and for your condition. So, hopefully, you can get this done in April. Okay,
8: thank you very much, Libby, And I hope you have a nice day. Thank you. And I listen to your show
1: every day. Thanks. And and I enjoy talking to you. I hope to get to meet you someday. Okay, thank you very much. That's very sweet of you. Okay. Erica in Ajax. Hi, Erica. Hi, Libby. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good, Libby. Uh, My question is,
8: I received my first vaccine, the Pfizer shot, back in February, uh, February 20th. And when I booked it, it gave me my second shot date for this coming month, March the 27th. When I went back online... And they gave you your certificate saying that, yes, you've received it. In the very bottom line, it says that my second shot is due, and it was empty. Now, I just took my dad to get his vaccine. He's over 80. He's going to be 90 this year. And when he got his shot, he was given paperwork after at Sunnybrook, and it gave him a specific date, and it is 35 days after his first one. So his second one will be in April. Should I just go ahead and go get my second shot on March the 27th? Because I haven't heard that the provincial government is going to delay the second shot for the four-month period.
1: It's a very specific question that I can't answer, but uh, I think they they have delayed second shots. I don't know if they delayed second shots for people who are over 80. Like, are there... Guys, (laughs) Guys
7: <laughs> uh, yeah, so they've delayed the second shot for uh, up to sixteen weeks. Uh, it's based on a, a national advisory committee uh, on immunization recommendation. Um, we, we are the only country in the world that is going with 16 weeks yep. in timeline. And there's there's obviously quite a bit of concern about that as to why we're the only country in the world. I think, quite frankly, it's because uh, we just don't have enough vaccine. Like our federal government has done really quite a poor job of procuring vaccine. We're and our
1: our prime minister keeps promising that everyone will be done by September. So uh, that means everyone will have a first shot. But my question is, I thought I was hearing or reading somewhere that maybe the doses won't be delayed for uh the oldest uh people is, is, do you guys know anything about that
7: don't know, but it changes every week so yeah I yeah don't.
1: so uh um erica we can't entirely answer that uh maybe your dad will 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 get his shot uh his second shot as it was originally you know uh scheduled uh you probably won't so uh, but we we can't tell you for sure thanks very much great show thank you very much bye bye and uh, getting back to what's happening in Pharmacy, John, I have to tell you that I, I scrambled to get, you know, refills for some things that uh, that I have today because I was thinking, oh my goodness, I'll never get through on the phone. And uh, there'll be a big lineup because uh, my local pharmacy is also one in the pilot project, but uh, they haven't even started yet. So <laughs> there was no problem. I got through on the phone.
2: And that's, you know, you bring up a good point, Libby. Whenever... Something like this happens, and we're you know uh, trying to do something on mass. It it is a challenge sometimes for our day to day patients to get through. I encourage them to be uh, as patient as they can coming in. There's two different lines. So patients that are using the pharmacy for their regular prescriptions or to, to shop, they can get into the store. The phone line is a challenge. Unfortunately, I can only have so many phone lines, and when uh, the media gets a hold of these. I start getting calls from all over the province, believe it or not, and it just bogs down the line. So I do apologize for that. As more stores go live on the pilot, and we have experience with this, by Saturday, I think the workflow starts to smooth out. So, you know, the number of patients getting vaccinated, obviously, are, is distributed through a greater number of stores, and it won't hopefully be as bad. But you're right, the lines right now are pretty
1: bad. Okay, uh, we've got to take a break. I'm getting, uh, I'm getting stern warnings from the guys in the <laughs> control room. Everybody hang on. Break.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Uh, Welcome back. We have just a couple of minutes left. Now, I have one question about uh, this shipment of AstraZeneca. I know that one of the reasons it's being distributed like this is because it's got an expiry date very soon on April the 2nd. So my question is, is that this particular shipment or do all of the shipments of that vaccine have a very short shelf life?
7: So I don't believe know. that um all of the all of the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine has uh, a shorter self life than some of the other ones but April 2nd is particularly tight having said that you know we're going to use that up tomorrow so i'm not particularly worried about the expiry uh, date on
1: my end okay no i'm sure you'll uh, i'm sure i'm sure you'll yeah. run out before it it, it, it expires uh, uh john so is is that an issue or uh, no, that
2: not at all savings the doctor there yeah we'll be we'll be done uh, that entire uh you know, allotment by the end of the weekend for sure. So, And I think that's one of the reasons they Engage Pharmacy is to try to get through this, knowing it was short-dated. And uh, hopefully, uh, you know, the next uh, uh, shipments have uh, longer dating. I imagine they will. Uh,
1: how many doses do you have to get through, John?
2: Uh, well, here, we initially got 500 doses here. Those will be done here today. I've got 500 coming to each of my other stores, and that should last to the end of the weekend.
1: Okay, yeah, I mean, uh, those are pretty big numbers, but as the general pointed out, you know, there's a, a total of, what, 190,000 doses and over a million people in that age group, so... Yeah, so it's not big. It's not big. Um, so uh, we only have uh, less than a minute left. Dr. Gandhi, what would you like to leave us with?
7: So I I just ask for a little bit of patience. I mean, I know there's a lot of uh, people who want this vaccine. Um, I think that if we can just be a little bit patient, uh, more recipients are coming next week and the week after, and we will get through this.
2: John? Yeah, yeah, same thing. I mean, it's going to be a busy few days. Please remember, we're only doing this for a very specific age group. If you fall out of that age, you don't come to the pharmacy. Don't call asking to get vaccinated. It is uh, really uh, bogging down our phone lines. But other than that, everyone's been quite patient, quite happy, and it's been a very interesting experience. So thanks for having me on, Libby.
1: Okay, well, thanks for coming on, both of you, John Puppesturgew and Dr. Sohail Gandhi. And people, remember, it's a pilot project only for those aged sixty to 64. And that's all the time we have for today. Remember, free for all Friday, coming up tomorrow.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.